Hello, and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behavior in a practical, fun, and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting, or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021 and the Potential Psychology Podcast's fourth year on air. Actually, that's a little misleading. We'll celebrate our third birthday in March, but technically it's the fourth year that we've hit the airwaves as we started in 2018. So, you know, kind of four calendar years. But anyway, welcome back. It's great to have you here. I hope you're as ready as anyone can be for what 2021 might bring. I have to say that the state of the world as it is right now with US politics and COVID wreaking havoc globally and border closures locally has distracted me from my usual new year planning and goal setting. I generally spend the first few days of the year by the beach visualising what the year might hold and setting some, I guess you might call them intentions, if not specific goals. But this year, Like many people, our holiday plans were disrupted by the closure of the Victorian border on New Year's Day and a mad dash home. And I don't know about you, but the constant flux of the past 10 months or so has left me sort of struggling to plan past the end of the week. I'm just not feeling it even now and we're well into January. But Rather than worrying too much about this or railing against it or fighting against it, I'm focusing on what I can control. And right now, that's bringing you brand new episodes of the show. And to kick off a new year, I'm also kicking off a fun little intro to each episode that I'm calling Three Things. So each episode, I will share three things that are helping me to fulfill my potential. And I'd love to hear about your three things too. So the three things are something I'm reading, something I've learned, and something I'm doing to grow. So push myself out of my comfort zone, take that step towards fulfilling my potential. So I'm going to tell you about my three things, and then I'd love you to tell me about yours. And I'll tell you how to do that in a moment. So number one for me is something I'm reading and it's Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant, which was published a few years ago now, 2016, I think, and I'm just getting around to reading it. In fact, I'm actually listening to it on Audible while I'm walking the dog because I'm finding that's the most efficient way for me to read nonfiction at the moment. And if you don't know Adam Grant, he's an American organisational psychologist who also hosts a great podcast called Work Life. He also does a lot of writing. He's a smart guy, great storyteller. And in originals, he's exploring the science of being original. So choosing to champion novel ideas and values that go against the grain or battle conformity or buck outdated traditions with a bigger goal of improving the world. And it's filled with case studies and stories and quotes. And while it's all based in science, and he does explain and share the science too, it's also very readable or in my case, listenable. So I definitely recommend it 
if you're interested in creativity or innovation or doing things differently or just how people who are original think and operate. So that's Originals by Adam Grant. That's what I'm reading or listening to. Number two is something I've learned, and it's always hard to pick just one thing that I've learned, but one thing that stands out, I actually learned from listening to originals, and that's the role that your birth order may play in your behaviour and success in different fields. So whether you're the firstborn or secondborn or subsequent born, and by your, I don't mean yours personally, but people in general across the population. So it turns out from research into birth order effects that firstborn children, that's me, may be more likely to be ambitious in terms of advancing their education and career because they're keen to impress the adults in their life, while siblings further down the birth order are more likely to be risk takers and succeed in fields like comedy or team sports because they've grown up trying to compete with their older siblings or perhaps entertain them or make them laugh or just have their voices heard. And of course, there is a lot more to it than that. That's a very simplified version of it. And we're talking about humans and they are complex and the research is still a little speculative, but I found it really interesting because I've often debated the role of birth order in personality formation with my dad, because that's the kind of weird thing that we discuss. And dad's very much of the view, being a second born, (laughs) that birth order does play a role in who you become. But traditionally, personality research, which I grew up with career-wise, just didn't support this idea. But this newer research that Adam Grant talks about in originals comes from evolutionary psychology, which again is a field that's a little controversial, but all very fascinating. And it's certainly something else for my dad and I to discuss. So that's my second thing. My third thing in my three things is something I'm doing to challenge myself. And my dad gets against in this one too, because I'm challenging myself to relax, which might sound weird, but as a very task-oriented person who grew up surrounded by very task-oriented people, winding down and relaxing doesn't come easily to me. In fact, growing up, dad would tell my sister and I that it was important to learn to relax, like it's a skill, because for us at least, and maybe for you too, there's always something else to do, isn't there? And when you have a lifetime habit of doing, it's hard to stop. So rather than charging around like a blue house fly and cleaning the house and catching up on tasks and just doing stuff during my holiday at home that should have been spent by the beach in New South Wales, I got up late and I've been doing a jigsaw. I'm continuing to do a jigsaw because they do take a long time. And I've been giving myself permission to just take things slowly. And during the holiday mode, that was really doing not much at all. And I'm not brilliant at it. And even while on holiday and still as I try to implement this now that I'm back at work, I find myself still mentally tallying up my achievements at the end of the day. So during holidays, it was packing up the Christmas decorations or mowing the lawn or tidying my email inbox, always making sure that I feel productive. But I certainly did do a good job of slowing the pace and I found that ideas and inspiration that completely eluded me in the weeks prior to Christmas when I was flat chat have returned and that certainly feels like growth of sorts. So that's my third thing is just pushing myself to relax.
So they're my three things for this episode. Let me know what your three things are. Something you're reading or watching or listening to, something that you've learned and something that you're doing to challenge yourself to fulfill your potential. So you can pop it on social media and tag it pp3 things that's the digit three or email me at ellenjackson at potential.com.au or send a message through our website at potential.com.au or use any of the other ways in which we connect and communicate in this digital age i'm really looking forward to seeing and hearing and perhaps sharing your three things but now it's time to turn to this week's episode. While we're talking about resting and recharging and learning and growing and getting our bodies and brains fit for whatever 2021 brings, it is time to introduce my guest because we're talking about all of those things and more. It's a really fun, positive and informative way to start the year. So let's go. thrilled to have Andrew May with me today. Andrew is a performance strategist and leadership coach. He's a best-selling author. He's an in-demand speaker, a regular on ABC News Breakfast. He's also the CEO and founder of strivestronger.com, a podcast host himself, a dad, and someone that I've actually known for a very long time. Welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you on the show. It's lovely to see you, lovely to talk to you as well. We were also co-inhabitors in Office Space a number of years ago back at North Ride. So we do go back a long time. We've been talking about doing this podcast for a while and it's exciting. We've got We've got the opportunity now to chat. Yes, yes. And I am excited. And yes, that wasn't that a very long time ago. I think that was the early 2000s possibly. Stop it. I was going to say it must be four or five years ago when we were starting our careers, Helen. It was. It was a long time ago, but lovely to have an opportunity to reconnect and talk. And as you said, it has been a little while coming as we set this up, but best things do transpire eventually. Andrew, we are going to talk a bit today about getting your body and your brain fit for work and fit for life. I've given a little bio there, but can you just tell our listeners a bit about your credentials and your background in performance in particular, because it spreads across a number of different domains over some period of time now. Yeah, look, I had breakfast this morning with Nigel Marsh. I don't know if you've had Nigel on this podcast, but the author of Fat, 40 and Fired and 50 Fired Up and there's another F alliteration in there, I can't remember. And he said, so I'm really fascinated because he just read a copy of the book Match Fit. He said, so tell me about the chronology of it. So I think Nigel must have been preparing me for our chat today. So I built a story, Ellen, like so many performers, so many people do, built on your top hits or your, remember back when we had cassette tapes when we were kids? And I say this to my children, they go, why didn't you just have Spotify? I'm like, go to your room, you're grounded. We didn't have Spotify then, you little turds, because it wasn't around. But my A-side of my top hits were I was good at sport at school. I won multiple state championships. Uh, I had a scholarship to be a coach at the AIS in the Tasmanian Institute of Sports Structure. So I moved there under my coach, John Quinn, as a runner and a coach. And I'd always been successful in sport. So I called that the movement, the body stuff in elite sport. 
I learned it's about recovery. You know, you train hard, recover harder. And then I moved back to Sydney, started working with the New South Wales cricket team, the Sydney Swans, the New South Wales Sydney Swifts, New South Wales netball team, female Sydney Kings, which is known as the Sydney Flames. And then the penultimate job I got in sports conditioning was travelling the world with the Australian cricket team in 05, 06. So I'd learned all the physical stuff, physiology. I learned all the recovery stuff. And then I had executives saying, hey, seen you do this stuff or at a conference. Can you come and talk to us? Because there's some parallels in sport about you know, being organized and focusing and in the zone and all that stuff. So yeah, I think there's some stuff I can transfer to sport, you know, build a few businesses in amongst that. So learn about productivity and then actually realized I was really missing something, Ellen. And I, I part blame you and I part blame <laughs> Tim Sharp and I part blame a few other psychologists who I learned a lot from along the way that in sport, we sports tell we don't sports coach because when you've got a team of male or female athletes, they've got enough on. So go do this, do that, do that. Great. I'm a coach. I'm a teller. So I went back and did coaching psychology under Tony Grant, God rest his soul, at mm-hmm. Sydney University, and then learned to pull it all together. So the story was good, Ellen. You know, I'd worked with the Australian cricket team, with the Sydney Swans. I'd built and sold a business to Accor. I was speaking on stages around the world. I was the performance guy behind some CEOs and executives, and it was a beautiful story. I was married at a big house and water views, and my wife was a, a newsreader. So we, it was a great story. Two young kids. And <laughs> went through a marriage breakdown and I didn't have a script for that. I didn't have a schema to, I couldn't re-alter the schema. I was the performance guy. You know, how do I look at Ellen and other friends and say, hey, my marriage hasn't worked. And, and, and the terms we give on that, marriage failure, marriage breakdown, you've had a few different iterations as a business owner. I've had other relationships. You know, oh, I'm a loser because I couldn't get it together. But I built my story so strongly on being the performance guy on physiology, recovery, productivity, and psychology that when it didn't work, it was like, what doesn't compute? Warning, warning. I was stuck in my thinking. And I was so wrong, Ellen, thinking that... If I saw coaching clients, athletes, friends, family, and said, hey, I'm not okay, that they judge me as being weak. Mm-hmm. So I, I then floundered 18 months to two years, functioning depressed, I would say, in hindsight. I'd still get up on stages, still did a bit of media, but I'd go home to an apartment. So I had no house. I only had the kids half the time. So it was no house, no kids, no dog, no backyard, no purpose, no fun. And it took just a couple of little things, but I said to one of my mates, one of my best mate, Mario, I've known since I was a kid, I said something to him. He said, mate, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, I, I think you should go and take some of your own medicine. You know, it's okay to go get some support. And I worked with a wonderful psychologist, and I've written about this in my book as well. And Jill McNaught helped me just totally get out of my limiting beliefs that because I couldn't keep a marriage together, I wasn't a failure. So that was the background. So a big challenge to your identity, a dissonance there between who you built yourself up to be in your mind or a perception of who you ought to be perhaps and then how you were feeling inside as a result of these events. Oh, we're going there early. I thought you'd give me at least 10 minutes, so let's go there. It was a cognitive dissonance in bold 56 points and hindsight reflection is a wonderful thing. 
Okay? At the time, you don't know because you're in pain and you're hurting. And I'd never had adversity, which we'll come back to, and I didn't have scar tissue, which we'll come back to. And my role identity was totally, it was inextricably linked to my self-identity. I couldn't separate the two. Mm. Jill helped me understand the B side. So the A side was the sports guy. And look, on top of that, I topped HSC in modern history and had built a few businesses. So life had always been good. It was probably that annoying a-hole that people go, oh, here he comes again. Yeah. Always lands <laughs> on his face. And I, I, I wouldn't try and promote it, but I, I, like I worked bloody hard. You know, it's success. When people say you're an overnight success, it takes 20 to 30 years. But I didn't have a B-side. And then when I got the B-side, which is the hits that people haven't heard or the, the non-top hits, I just didn't know how to put it together. But you know mm. what I now realise, Ellen, as a coach, as a speaker, as a podcast, as a dad, as a lover, as a family member, as a friend, as a community member, and the list goes on, people connect with you so much more when you've got a B-side. So my limiting story, the schema that was driving my success that then led me to fall down and took a, a, a fair bit of work to pick myself up, is that life's got to be great. Yeah, mm. Everything's awesome. And you build a story and a narrative on that. And then when that narrative changes, no, this is not the story. It's mm. a bit like uh, there's something about Mary. No, no, it's not seven-minute abs. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's not six minutes. It's seven-minute abs. I was that guy. And I laugh at it but go, you know, my thinking was so conditioned that this is, it's about success. Yeah. And this is something, and you've mentioned it as well, that you really introduce. I love that idea of the A side and the B side, you know, this idea that we can have two sides to our stories and that's okay. And we need to acknowledge and share that B side in order to be authentic. And that's exactly what you do when you open your book, which you mentioned, which is called Match Fit, the complete manual to get your body and brain fit for work and fit for life. It really is a manual, isn't it? I was so taken with the depth of, and I could see you coaching psychology, you know, both being an alumnus, is that the word, of the coaching psychology program at the University of Sydney. I could really see the depth of the science in there and you're covering off all of these components, which we'll come to, but you do open with this story just as you've described it. Was that hard to do? Yeah, interesting question. It felt right to do. I don't know whether it was hard, it was risky. And my co-author, Dr. Tom Buckley, and I'll mm. give credit, a lot of the science mm. as well. I've worked with Tom now for 15 years in five different business iterations. And Tom is head of our research institute at Stride Stronger, but he's also associate professor at Sydney Uni. So he's got some serious horsepower, that boy. And we said, look, when we do, we, we did flip the switch 10 years ago and there was... I think you look back on books you've written. I'm sure we look back at podcasts we do in 10 years and you hear the change and the evolution. It's the same with your writing. And I don't think anyone should ever say, I'm embarrassed about the book I wrote because that's the book you wrote at that time. I do look at some of the stories I wrote 10 years ago. It was very kitsch, cappuccino cowboys, roadrunner, you know, chill, kill, thrill, spill. It needed a bit more rigor, I think, to go to that next level of consulting outside of keynotes to run large-scale culture change and behavior programs because CEOs don't really want to talk about cappuccino cowboys boys and roadrunner syndrome right it's, it's, so i wanted to add the rigor but not lose people but i also wanted to be a true reflection of me and other people as well so i thought rather than writing the story hey everything's awesome i'll go with the a side b side and ellen i can't tell you so i get i get sort of a bit tingly when i think of this um, not because i think oh, i've done an amazing thing 
No, I was just writing authentically, but I can't tell you how many conversations I've had predominantly with men, but some wonderful ones with women as well, who've said, thank you, you get me. Mm. Like, I, I read your book and I thought, yeah, I've got to do something, or I, I now understand that I'm not alone. Because if you're the so-called performance guy and you were feeling so shitty for so long, yeah, I've got to go do something to pull myself out. And and an analogy I had a client say, we, we learn so much from our clients, Ellen. Sometimes we, we shouldn't have an exchange of money. It should be just an exchange <laughs> of ideas, right? And Christian, a client from Bank West a number of years ago, gave me a beautiful analogy around mental health and, and especially self-talk. And he said, Andrew, I feel like I'm in a car park in a big building and I'm driving around B1 and B2 and I can see the off-ramp. And my Peripheral vision is pulling me towards there, but subconsciously, I, I just veer left and I go back to B1 and then I go up to you know, B2 and that's exactly what I was. So, I on a Christian, I was driving around B1 and B2 and got up, look, I've got a degree in exercise physiology. I'm the coaching psychology guy. You know, I coach top 20 ASX CEOs and that's what I was telling myself. How come you can't sort out your own shit? Well, you've got to get out of your own way mm-hmm. and stop pretending you know everything And actually acknowledge, and I say this for men, especially in Australia, it's okay to not always be okay. And that was one of the power quotes that came out of this. And in fact, putting your hand up and saying, hey, I'm not okay, is the start of when you can put everything back together. Yeah. And that when you mentioned that the book was about you, but also about others, and that was exactly what struck me as I was reading it, was this has to be powerful to all of those people. And again, I I probably thought, and I mean, it's got a sort of the sports and performance flavour to it that I think would appeal to the Australian male demographic at that kind of CEO and senior executive and high performance level. But also I don't, you know, women aren't immune to that, especially now. I think, you know, the influence of social media and some others have suggested that there's really a pressure to only show that A side and Mm. to never reveal that B side, which, you know, I know as a psychologist, this isn't going to help anyone, but to be able to share your vulnerability, to share your story, to be able to connect with people at that level and tell them that it's okay to not be okay, it's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing that you've been able to do. So, you know, kudos for that. Well, thank you. Three immediate things to that. One is being vulnerable if you're going to be vulnerable, be vulnerable. Don't orchestrate it. Mm. So I was really conscious of not orchestrating it. Mm. I love Brené Brown. I've got all of her books and I I know you do without even asking Mm. you. (laughs) But I see a lot of people get up on stage now and, and, and say stuff like, I'm about to be vulnerable with you. It's like they've read the book and now I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to lean in, quote Sheryl Sandenberg, and we're going to build connection and trust. (laughs) Don't tell anyone you're about to be vulnerable. Be vulnerable if it's authentic, yeah, and and, and really mean it and, and show people some of that authenticity and vulnerability and if it's real you'll connect with people not because it's a marketing thing it's because it's real and that's Mm. why i I needed it to be authentic the second one dr tom was really concerned and we had some conversation about he said look i'm really worried about this we did a bit of split testing had some people read it different groups asked some different questions to see the response and overwhelmingly they came back and said look we love it and some of his colleagues in academia from around the world have come back and said, oh, I love the change. So it's actually done Tom's head in a little bit in an academic world. And you get this, right? Because academics do a wonderful job, but they're trained to look at problems in other people's research. Mm-hmm. We talk about broaden and build theory. Uh, we've got to mention 
broaden and build theory in an interview like this. But I, I think also when you look at problems, you broaden and build more problems. So you, you, you flip the model backwards, right? But we focus on grows. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing was you've got to be authentic realistically. The second one, Dr. Tom was quite concerned about it. And we addressed that, looked at different groups. We've had feedback that it was the right thing. And three, we've sold more than 75,000 copies. So more sales than I could have possibly ever dreamt of. Mm. So it's hit a nerve. Absolutely. And look, I don't doubt that at all. And I think it is probably the combination of that storytelling. And you've included a lot of storytelling in here in in case studies, in your own stories, but your own experiences, but also the experiences of others. And then combine that with a model that we'll step through in a moment and the scientific rigor that really explains, I think, in a beautiful way and in an easy to understand and engaging way. I mean, we mentioned academia. I think one of the challenges of academia is that there's a big gap between the work that gets done and then how it gets communicated out yeah. there into everyday life. And I think there's a lot of other people who feel the need in terms of, you know, we want to know what to do, but then it doesn't have the academic rigor behind it. You know, I think you've you've done a lovely job in this, you and Tom, of breaching that gap and being able to bring that to life for people. I'll make sure Tom listens to this because yes. I, I want him to get the kudos as well. Yes, Let's just yes, think that yes. Tom's in the back doing Absolutely. the research. No, not at all. Not at all. There was over 500 peer-reviewed journals to go into this and because a lot of work and I made it more work because you know you have your darlings man I've got to put that story in there when you don't <laughs> understand everyone and, and working with a good editor is wonderful so Julian Welch as well thank you but yeah it's resonated which has been really nice mm-hmm. and for a while like I wouldn't have told you yeah I've had this many sales but I say that because it's not me alone pumping up my tires it's been a real team effort and it really helped launch a new business when I came out of KPMG as a partner and thought how do I launch a new business and also make meaning of my last five years go pencil away six months and write a book Mm. (laughs) a lot of work but the reflection on it was very very powerful and I don't know but I find that writing really clarifies my thinking actually having to pull things together into a way that's easily communicable to others just helps me to kind of clear that up in my own mind as well. I think everybody, underscore everybody, should write. Now, if anyone's listening to this and they're a small business owner or they work in business and they lead teams, if you do not write, you're doing yourself a disservice because you are not making meaning of your thoughts. Hmm. You become the inner coach. So working out what's happening with storytelling gratitude and appreciation you often don't realize until you put it down but also if you are going to be teaching and coaching and counseling and what else have I missed podcasting and tving and everything else I find writing helps me really clarify and then sometimes you get in a situation you quote something and you're playing this alternative it's, where'd that come from wow that sounded okay <laughs> oh that's right I wrote that <laughs> because you've got to distill when you write and I find if you just talk you can become quite verbose. There's a beautiful letter or the story of the letter from Mark Twain to one of his colleagues, and it was eight pages long. And down the bottom, he put, P.S., I'm sorry this is so verbose. I didn't have time to make it succinct. Yeah, writing helps you make your message succinct. Yeah, I think that's an excellent tip there for anybody listening about the power of writing just to get your thoughts in order before you put it out there into the world in whatever format. So, Andrew, we've talked up the book. Can we just talk, and and obviously that intro there, which is your story and and how it came to be, can you just talk us through, there's sort of three main elements to it and then some steps. And it is around getting yourself into the best 
physical, psychological, emotional state to perform in whatever domain you are endeavouring to perform in, isn't it? It is, it is. And before I go through the three different phases, just a little bit of backstory. When I was in sport, elite sport for 15 plus years, we look at three things for a, a good male or female sports person. There's the craft. If you're going to go and play tennis, be good at hitting a ball with a racket. Okay? <laughs> uh, if you can't do that, don't choose tennis. If you dive in a pool and you sink, don't go and try out for the Australian Dolphins swimming team. So you've got your craft first, right? And, and that is the sport. Then 20 so years ago, a few of my mentors and I came into sport, people like Dave Misson, who's really a pioneer in Australian sports conditioning. John Quinn was another one. Coaches added the physical side. So then you get the physical skills. And that's where we really looked at the recovery. That's skills training. So, you know, learning how to regulate heart rate, learning how to sleep properly in sport, learning how to shift your circadian rhythm before uh, a rugby team and the super 15s, I think it is now, keeps going up and then changing. But if you're playing in South Africa, it's a real impulse on your circadian rhythm if you don't make that shift. So we, we teach all these skills, right? So we've got the craft, then we've got the physical side. And what's only coming in, and for someone like you, Alan, you must be just scratching your head and going, how can they only just now start to talk about mental skills training? Well, I think athletes, the like the Michael Jordans, the Pelés, the Don Bradmans, they were doing mental skills training. They just didn't tell everyone or they didn't call it that. You know, it was self-talk. It was reflection. It was goal setting. It was Michael Gervais, one of the world's leading sports psychologists, talks about front-loading your cognitive skills. So as a young female cricketer, you get out there now in the MCG in the World Cup, which happened early this year, when we won against India, and there's 100,000 people. How do you handle that if you haven't done any training? So they're the three things we look at, right? There's your craft, there's the physical side, and there's the mental side. The match fit is really the manuscript to say, go do your craft, but we're going to give you skills around the physical side and the psychological or the mental side to navigate work and life. And I know you believe passionately about this as much as I do. A lot of these skills we should be taught as a young kid. I remember some things at school that don't help me a lot in life. I know, Ellen Jackson, that volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed. Yeah? So next time I'm in Ballarat, we'll meet in the main street, take me to your favourite coffee shop and say, hey, Andrew, there's a tank. Wow, Ellen, what's the radius? Oh, I think it's about you know, 1.6 metres. I'll work out the volume. How good is that? Perfect. <laughs> volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed. Yeah? But I didn't have the cognitive skills front-loaded how to pick myself up, but I'd been playing A side all my life and I got to the B side and I didn't know how to you know, wind the cassette up. So mm. I think it's paramount that we learn these skills throughout life. And if you haven't learned them early, doesn't matter, can't change that, learn them now. Learn them now, yeah. And that's a great thing I love with your podcast because when I listen to it, I learn skills. Yeah. And then that's the way I think of it with psychology. And, and we used to think, oh, I've got to go see the psychologist. Now it's like, awesome, I'm off to see the psychologist. It's skills training. Yeah, got to get a massage, get my nails done, and then I'm seeing the psychologist. Go you. That is. And I think that's something that we just, I would love to see more of that conversation being had. And it's exciting that it has. You mean, I, yes, I think there is a part of me, there's certainly a part of me and probably most psychologists who go, how come we didn't know this stuff before? How come we weren't talking about it in sport, in leadership, what has been has been, and let's just be glad that it's happening now and looking to the future with what else we can do. I would mm. like to see at a community level, at a governmental level, more conversation around this as well. That's something that I find frustrating that so much of our conversation in our community 
around mental health is really about mental illness. And I know my um, my listeners know that I bang on about this a bit, but you know, every little bit helps. It does. More people like you, the wonderful program you're doing, the leadership program in Ballarat, your community program, that helps. Uh, it, apparently, it wasn't always like this. Do, do you know Dr. Nicola Gates? The name is familiar. I'll put you in contact with Nicola. You need to get her on this podcast. And sure. Nicola is our Strive Stronger consulting psychologist or neuropsychologist. And Nicola was telling me in a podcast recently where I was interviewing. It's actually nice to be interviewed, Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was saying that it wasn't always like that, that psychology in the early 1900s looked at human condition. Then we had two world wars. And the world war, it was about after that, you know, post-traumatic stress. We didn't have a term back then, but it was about trauma. So psychology really became about what is wrong in the human condition. And then mm. I think a lot of us have heard the Martin Seligman story. Martin Seligman, the president of the American Psychological Association, he's watering his lawn and his young daughter said, Dad, yeah, you're a psychologist. Yeah, yeah, I'm the president of the American Psychological Association. Well, Dad, how come you always tell me what's wrong rather than what's right? And apparently the hose went everywhere and Seligman went, oh, and then he was seen as starting the positive psychology movement. But Nicola said to me, no, no, that's rubbish. It had always been there, but World War One and Two got us to really focus on what's wrong. And then suddenly we stepped back and went, hey, why don't we look at the other side, the human flourishing, rather than just the languishing or the struggling? Mm, mm, absolutely. And I mean, the humanistic psychologists, in mm. fact, I don't know, here we are, in my enormous pile of books that I have on my desk here. And for our listeners, this is completely pointless exercise because you can't see me, but I'm holding up Scott Barry Kaufman's book, Transcend, which is possibly back the front for Andrew as he's seeing it. No, I can see it. I'm just writing it down. Which is the new science of self-actualization. And in it, Scott, who is the host of the Psychology Podcast, one of my favourite podcasts to listen to, has re-examined the work of Abraham Maslow. So we all know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So he was one of the humanistic psychologists from the 50s and 60s. And there was a humanistic, which is really the precursor to positive psychology in many ways, looking at, you know, what does help people to thrive and flourish. But it was largely theoretical at that stage. There wasn't a whole lot in the way of scientific rigour around it. You know, wonderful, wonderful ideas that have stood the test of time and are quite mesmerising when you read them now in the context of what we know. But Scott has actually put the included all of the up-to-date research in PosPsych and the related fields and incorporated with some of the stories of, of Maslow. And it's an amazing book. So definitely one to read. And yes, sort of parallels that idea that, you know, this stuff has always been there. It's just not had mm. the emphasis. And that's part of, you know, the human condition in that we will always, our brains will naturally alert us to the things that are problematic, going wrong, causing trouble causing grief and gloss over the good bits. So it's probably just part of that same narrative that in psychology, we've started to go, oh, where are the problems? Where's the dysfunction? Mm. And absolutely, we need to do that. You know, we need to be providing the services and the support and the knowledge and the skills and everything to those people who are struggling with ill health. But very much as you suggest in match fit, we also need to be making sure that everyone in every domain has all of those skills as well before the wheels fall off, preferably. 
And well done getting us back onto the story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to order that book Transcend this afternoon. It's the brilliant. question you asked before I got a little bit excited about the evolution of psychology is three parts to it's not just a book it's the way we approach working with people in large scale culture programs. We call it first of all calculate Number two, engage. Number three, track. So what does that really mean? Number one, find out where you are. So for your wonderful listeners, they can go to the website matchfitcalculator.com and they can do the matchfit calculator and they'll find a score out of 100. They'll get a score for their body and brain and then they'll get five science-based metrics as well, which shows them mental agility, mental flexibility, their nutrition barometer. They'll get a physical the sort of posture profile, they'll get a movement and there's one as well on recovery. So very, very rigorous. And then you basically, you match fit or you're not. What I like about that is you then have a score to work on mm-hmm. because you know, we are predominantly goal-setting, goal-achieving creatures. And when you give someone a score, like if you're building a financial portfolio or running a sales business, there's metrics that underpin that. So get the calculate first. The second bit, which is most of the book, is engage. And they are the six levers we looked at to really activate the body and brain. But also, I, I want to live for a long time, Ellen. Like, I, I openly have said on many public forums, I want to live to 130. Now, I've got good genetics. My great-grandfather lived to 99. And Ike, the story goes, you know, went to World War One, smoked a combination of tobacco and cow poo. They used to get dry cow poo and mix it up with tobacco so it would go further, right, back in um. the old days. At 99 years of age, yeah, <laughs> wonderful taste. Um, at 99 years of age, he read the Sydney Morning Herald, the Marlborough Man, and in fine print it said, smoking may cease your lifespan. So our family joke is, silly old guy, should have kept smoking, he would have made 100. Now, I'm not <laughs> telling people to smoke at all because there's genetics and epigenetics. So, you know, genetics is what you have. Epigenetics is how you express your genes. So I've obviously got some good genes that will take me hopefully for a long time. But then it's what you do to have a healthy, prosperous life along the way. So the six levers are, and in no particular order, because it's not like, well, first you've got to do number one. Yep. But the, the six are move, fuel, recharge, think, play, connect. Move is physical activity, which is not fitness. It's physical activity, just sort of getting going all the time and moving the body. Obviously, fuel is nutrition and fluids and alcohol. Recharge is two things. It's physical relaxation, so that's parasympathetic response, and it's psychological detachment, switching off the mind. You've got to do both body and brain. Then we've got think, which is obviously the whole from if you're struggling, don't tell someone, and I'm getting into your domain, so of course you and your listeners know this, but if you're feeling below the line, if you're stressed, anxious, depressed, and someone says, go set an affirmation, you know, wake up every day, go get stuff. Because if you you are not thinking in a healthy way, don't go and put this sugar coating. And I sometimes get irate, as I know you do, when you hear the motivation speakers, some of the biohackers saying, you know, just set a daily intention, you know, live, love, leave a legacy. Well, no, if you're feeling stink, Go get some support and work out the thinking skills before you start doing stuff. And I'm not sugarcoating affirmations, and I do a lot of stuff in sports psychology around pre-performance routines and framing and all that stuff as well. But the thinking skills for where you are is really important. Connect uh, was connecting with your purpose, connecting with others, relationships, connecting with community, and connecting with nature. And then the sixth, the final one we added in was play. Mm. You've got two 
boys. Two boys. And for you and for our listeners, whether you have kids in your family, immediate or extended family, or you just know kids, and, and you look at kids, they play, they have play dates, they watch play school, they have play time, yeah? they have play dough. And, and my kids say, what am I going to have for play lunch? So like kids just have this beautiful language, they play. What do we do? We, as adults, especially during COVID, we, we do Zoom meetings, Helen. <laughs> we do. And that's where the story ends. We, we do Zoom meetings. Yep. And then wonder, wonder why we get to the end of the year and we're just so tired and can't <laughs> wait to get the hell out of here. So you've got to add in play and fun and laughter and joy. Yeah. And that was what, there's a couple of things in there in those different domains that you've outlined that I really wanted to pick up on because I think they are the ones that get forgotten. Play is one of them and we'll come back to that. The other one was the recharge. And they're probably a bit aligned in what you just mentioned then about being at the end of the year and just starting to feel like, and so many people just like, I just need a break. I need that holiday. I need that rest. I need to get out of my current and for those of us in Victoria in particular, I think I just need to get out of my space and go somewhere else. But that recharge, I think, is something that we forget and that my understanding is it is something that is starting to be spoken about more, particularly in the sporting domain and, and then in the across-the-performance domains. Yeah, look, in sport, it's just a given. If you're now running a performance department in any professional sport, and I'd even go the next level, like semi-professional sport, and you don't have a recovery plan, you're not going to have a job for very long. Because we know when you put in proactive recovery strategies in sport, and there's a whole range of modalities like ice baths, massage, hydration. We know after men or women finish a game, especially contact sport, they recover 40% quicker if you start the recovery process straight away. So after a grand final, of course, they're going to have beers. But after a, a game mid-season, if they have beers, well, they're, they're delaying the whole recovery process. You get more soft tissue injuries. Everyone knows you are actually putting not just yourself but the team at risk. So there's a real shift in that culture now. I think a lot of people go, oh, yeah, footballers, especially male footballers in Australia, have had a reputation of drinking a lot. Well, they used to. But i tell you what, in season now, some of them don't drink at all. Then you have everything, the sleep, and a lot of them wear whoop bands and they have HRV, heart rate variability. They do urinalysis and power grids and daily logs, like, you know, what's your emotion like? So there's this whole physical, psychological and emotional ways of measuring their recovery. Now, I'm going to be at risk of sounding like one of those people that when I was doing sports conditioning 10 years ago, I was where it was just starting to really come in. I think it's gone a bit far and I'm doing some mental skills work with some professional sporting teams now, which I'm loving, and just talking to the physical department and it's really interesting. There's two schools of thought. There's one is manage everything, which is almost micro. And there's the others who I think come sometimes more from the performance background themselves that go, okay, all that stuff's nice. But I look at a player and I can see in her eyes, she hasn't got that spark or joy or playfulness she normally has at training. I don't need your analysis, force plate platforms, your heart rate variability and all the other stuff. I can just say, hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm fine. Okay. Most males, oh, I've done the right thing. You know, are you okay? Fine, move on. No, move. So, Sarah, in the last three days, what's something that has been joyful? Or so you go to that deeper level. So, I think that's the thing that we need to look at as well. Don't just get stuck up on the measurement of recovery. Look at some of the humanistic things as well. So, I think that in sport is now just a given. 
Mm. But in the corporate world, and I know, you know we've had chats about this over the years, the corporate high-flyer executives who bought into Pierre de Coubertin's 1906 Olympic Creed, and it was a good one, you know, Altius, Deltius, Fortius, faster, higher, stronger. And then you get into your mid-40s and wonder why your hormones aren't working the same, why your memory recall, that was a, <laughs> <laughs> that was a visual gag for our audience. <laughs> why you've attained this level of success, so you've got achievement, but you don't feel fulfilled. One of the biggest myths people can have is, you know, it's all about achievement, I'm going to be happy. Mm. But then you get, get to this wonderful level of success and then there's no real meaning and purpose. And then the Todd Cashdan who talks about the good life and the good life, you can have both. The good life, pleasure, meaning, success, power, but the good life is pleasure, meaning and purpose. So in sport, it's just a given. We play hard, we recover hard, we play hard, we recover hard. In the corporate world, it can be go, 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 but it's the recovery that helps you make meaning. It's the reflection. There's loads of research you could quite right now on the power of reflective practice mm. and how that helps you change behaviours and acknowledge what's worked and form new mental models. But it's the recovery that gives you sustainability. Mm. Yeah? So Tom Brady is 43 and still playing NFL. Roger Federer is getting towards, what, 37, I think, or so now? Yeah. It was unheard of. So they might be outliers now, but you watch in sport in the next 15, 20 years, you'll have more players playing until their late 30s, early 40s. So now the corporate world is suddenly going, oh, Fedra, Brady, Serena Williams are playing a decade longer than their peers because they're actually building in some time for recovery. Mm. Maybe we should do the same. Yeah, it's a big cultural shift, isn't it, for organisations, for just people generally, perhaps for especially those who are high achievers and used to performing and, you know, there is a an expectation that we have spoken or unspoken that you just keep going hard, that you work these incredible hours, that pre-COVID at least you're on an aeroplane every other week flying from here to there to get to meetings, to visit different parts of the business, whatever it might be. and it's going to take something and I'm not sure what it is. You know, do you think, is it your experience that that reflection is starting to happen, that noticing that this isn't helping us in the way that we expect it would be? Is it, is it starting to stall people's performance? Is it just that lack of meaning? Is it that people are exhausted? Is the message getting through, do you think, yet? You've given me about five different themes there, so let me try and unpack <laughs> Sorry, them yes. all. If I've, if I've missed one, let that me was know. That question. Um, it was good. You got me on my toes. There's a definite greater awareness around it. When I started speaking at conferences 10, 12 years ago, and you talk about recovery from sport, ooh, like now it's like, oh, come on, mate. we've heard this before. So there's more people doing it. There's a much more awareness now around this whole human performance area as well, which has come from what's well, come from sport, it's come from military and performing arts. So if you talk about performance psychology, it's really you know, what, what do we do to get athletes in the zone? You know, I think we can sometimes get a little bit caught up on the big terms and everything, but really what, what is performance psychology? It's what's the moment and how do you get the athlete to be totally present and do their best? So I think more corporates are going, now. okay, well, what's a performance moment in my life? It's not 
168 hours a week. If I'm running a company, it's when I'm doing a market update. It, it's the, the roadshow to investors. It's the one-on-one with the future guy or girl I want to recruit as my next CFO. It's managing up to the board when they're asking me some really curly questions about revenue dropping during COVID. So I think now corporates are getting onto, oh, I can use that. So I think I've covered off the first one that, yes, it is much more common or it's known more, but self-awareness and self-regulation can sometimes be missing cousins. Two different things. Yeah. Self-awareness, I know what to do. Yeah, yeah. Look, Andrew, I've tried an aura ring. You know, I know what my heart rate variability is. You know, I practice yoga. Okay. Why are there bags under your eyes? You know, why are you barking at your kids on a Saturday morning and your, your staff think you're an a-hole? And why is there no passion in your, in your life? Oh, mate, I don't actually do it. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> so it's actually putting it into practice. I measure it, but I don't change anything. Yeah, yeah. So I've got all this stuff. And I could tell you some funny stories about people I've worked with over the years. And you know, sometimes the worst coaching client is someone who's highly educated and they use a coping mechanism called intellectualization. So they know what to do, but they don't do it. Whereas the best person is someone who goes, mate, I had no idea about that. Thank you. And they put it into practice. And you see mm-hmm. them a month later and they just have totally changed changed their world. The, the next one, I think I'm ticking off the third one on your list is we're now just becoming a lot more aware around life is very different with COVID. I think now is, is it's okay to talk about now. A couple of months ago, it was still too raw. I know very close to you, Melbourne has just come out of lockdown and it was so good to go back to Melbourne earlier this week. But it's been a really tough year. And in the past, it has just been this ridiculous pace and I don't want to downplay this because I know there's a lot of small business owners who still aren't on their feet. And some of them may never be the same. My heart goes out to the 2.2 million Australian small business owners of which you and I are in that bracket because it's been challenging. There's a number of people who don't have jobs. Okay? There's a number of industries that have been impacted dramatically. Some have flourished, some have floundered, most are, are somewhere in between. So I don't want to trivialise. What I do want to talk about, though, is COVID, I think, has really changed for a lot of us, the focus on what's important. Because when you're working from home and you're there with your partner, your flatmate, your neighbour, your kids, your community, there's been this shifting in gears. It was like the first three months up until Easter was panic, fear, amygdala hijack, anxiety. We're going to have jobs. Oh, oh, we're all on Zoom. It was just, it was this constant go, 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 go. So no, talking about recovery then to a client probably wasn't the right thing. Hey, you know, do some breathing. Do you realize if you look at your mobile phone 30 minutes before you go to bed, it stimulates your pineal gland? Don't do that. You know, it's going to impact your deep sleep. Mate, get stuffed. I don't know if I'm going to have a job. So yeah. when you're in that fear factor, support people, you know, get through it. Then I think what happened, Ellen, around April and as this went longer and it wasn't, hey, you know, it's going to be finished by the end of the year, we still don't know when is COVID either going to have a vaccine or you know, be eradicated enough that we can get on with normal living. So it's the new normal. But it's shifted a lot of people's perspective to actually look at what's important. And I, I think this global experiment on pushing everyone to work from home has been amazing for future diversity. I think it's amazing for women and men. I think sometimes we just say, oh, yeah, for working women. No, I was a single dad for six years, so I'm going to stick my hand up for all the, the dads and mums, single mums and dads, because it's bloody tough. But flexible working conditions are going to make it so much easier Yeah, for the primary carers with their kids. I know you had a, a couple of experiences with your boys. I never want to do homeschooling again. 
<laughs> it's made us appreciate teachers. <laughs> now, I love school teachers. I've always loved school teachers. They get paid way too little for the impact they have on people's lives. But, oh, gee, did we miss them when we didn't have them during COVID. So a bit of a ramble, but I think COVID has been a, the great reset. And I do think we'll look back in a number of years. And I really do hope we just don't go back to what it was. Mm. I hope we throw out some of the stuff that wasn't working, some of the ridiculous practices where companies go, oh, Ellen, welcome to the organisation. Here are our values, integrity, respect, balance. Uh, okay, look, Andrew, um, Friday afternoon I want to go and pick up my kids at 3pm. I know we've got a proposal due. Yeah, so, mm. yeah, it's the value, but our behaviours don't match that. You know? yep. It's totally changed and that's good. Yeah. I mean, coming back to that rest, reflection, recharge, and I really like that you mentioned the word reflection because I think a big part of this is that actually taking the time to embed the learning, to think about what it is we're doing, why we're doing it. I, I, to use it, you know, the old small business analogy that came from the e-myth, it, it's the working on your business instead of just in your business, which is the same with life. It's working on your life and not just being in it day to day. What are your tips when you're working with leaders, with organisations to help people actually start to embed some of the doing of this? I mean, COVID's giving us opportunities, but what should they be doing? One of my favourite quotes is the power of cultivating free space. And we don't because a lot of people can't relax. A lot of people can't be. They do. Mm. Yeah, they've got to do stuff. They fill mm. up the diary from sun up to sundown and then when they go on a holiday or a yoga retreat wonder why they have all these feelings bubble up and it's it's, it's just gonna make me busy scary i don't like doing this i build in with my leaders reflective practice in a week and i'd like them all to have at least two or three hours just to have a notebook ideally get off the technology because unless they've got amazing self-regulation they'll check instagram they'll check Mm -hmm. linkedin they'll get the dopamine hit and they go into infinity pools and three hours later they've just watched cat videos and (laughs) (laughs) a couple of fishing videos (laughs) yeah we all have so getting them to build that reflective practice in is really important and also i work with a lot of high achievers and it's been similar to my story go 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 altius deltius fortius I need to find out what the word is for recovery in Latin, but recoverious. <laughs> it often takes me three to six months to work with a, a male or female executive, high performer, media, entertainer, artist, to actually enjoy doing nothing, to enjoy stillness, to actually see that that peace and calm is really important. Because as I mentioned earlier, that's where you make meaning. And if you add journaling to that, it's rocket fuel for you to really navigate and align that with your personal purpose, you really start to make decisions that are true to your core. And then you find a few years later, wow, I find that I'm in flow a lot more and I'm doing stuff I really enjoy. I think we've got to be careful to not go, find your purpose, find your passion. Sometimes people are never going to really find their true passion at work. So find something you can adapt to and have wonderful, passionate pursuits outside. Mm. Now, all that mixed in, if you don't take time out, it's just go, 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 go. So I'm a huge believer in putting a recovery plan together for people. I think every day we should take five to ten minutes. I, I used to run behind, and I emphasize behind the Kenyan runners, and the Kenyans had a beautiful word, hapa, hapa, which means now, now, and slowly, slowly. We don't have a word like that in the English language. Funny, huh? Mm. But every day have five to ten minutes of hapa, hapa. It could be meditation. It could be mindfulness. It could be just breathing. It's just doing nothing. You know, every week, do a few activities that bring on parasympathetic activation. It could be yoga. It could be a bath. You know, lock the door, get the kids out. 
light a candle, have your favourite music, listen to music. It could be just a walk in the park in bare feet is even better, ground with nature. It could be a massage. Um, Ellen, you might get your hair done. I don't really have that need anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just something that's around self-care. So something every day, something every week. Every month, if you're going to really get into this, I'd say take out a half day most months Hmm. and just treat yourself. And then every year, a proper holiday for 10 days to two weeks where Mm. you are off the technology and Mm. you just go back to doing like we did as kids, building a fort or playing with sticks. Mm. And I know we don't build forts and play sticks, but yeah, when we were kids, we used to survive without technology. Yeah. And so, Andrew, what what intrigues me about that, because I know, you know, when I've spoken about and I'm a passionate believer in everything that you've just stated there, and, and I think even for me, it's been a personal challenge because I am a doer by nature and lots of expectations about what one should be doing with one's time at any given moment. So how do you work with perhaps the resistance that you might get from people as they transition their thinking? Because it is a mindset shift, isn't it, to start to be able to give ourselves permission to do this recharging, to allow ourselves time out to do things that at some level feel very self-indulgent, at least initially, until we start to understand the benefits. Yeah, so two themes there I want to pick up. One is that self-management is not selfish. And for anyone listening to this, I call the triad. If you are female, if you are family-oriented, and you have religious or spiritual beliefs, think about this as I'm talking through. Yeah, I'm female. I'm talking about others, not me, Ellen. (laughs) So I'm female. I am family-oriented, and I have religious or spiritual beliefs. You will put yourself last all the time. Mm-hmm. You will do everything for the community, the clients, the stakeholders, even that bitch down the road that you you know you can't stand, <laughs> and you'll do something for her because she's on the school f- committee. And then you'll put yourself last. Put your oxygen mask on first. It's a great analogy. When mm-hmm. you're flying, you put your oxygen mask on before your kids and other loved ones, because you then make better decisions. So mm-hmm. I'm very firm on that. It's not self-indulgence, it's self-management. You are a better mother, a better father, a better lover, a better family member when you take care of yourself. Yeah. So the second thing on that is getting a bit deep. So if I go to coaching psychology, pull me out, but depends on the case conceptualization. So when you start with someone in coaching psychology and clinical psychology, we always start with a blank pad with no preconceived ideas because true coaching, counseling, mentoring is you are in service of others. So you use all the skills, all the training, all the science, all the research to better try and support that person to be in a better way, whatever that means. So then I'll try and work out, do I think my person's physical based or are they more cognitive based? Now, I don't know the research on this, so maybe it's a um, paper we need to look at down the track. I find people who've had a physical background, if I talk about all the benefits of yoga and breathing and everything else and try and get them to change the cognitive approach, they stay up here in the head. Whereas if if they're physical, I'll get them to do the physical and then I find their thinking catches up with the movement. Example, when I was a personal trainer for years and I didn't know anything about coaching psychology back then, but I I used to get great results because I used to train my clients the way I used to run. Now, I wasn't broad or diverse, but if someone said, hey, I want to lose weight, great, come and see me on Monday and then come join my group on Wednesday and Friday. Can I talk about it? Yeah, come and see me on Monday. We'll do a training session on Monday and then on Wednesday and Friday do my group session. And if they stayed three months later, 
they'd be really fit. And then they would tell me, Andrew, I'm sleeping better. Do you know physical activity is wonderful for your self-esteem? Do you know I've started two offshoot products because I'm more creative? Do you know my wife, true story, one of my clients said, my wife was that close to leaving me, Andrew. She had the spare car, her car, reversed, front out, boot packed, saying, if you don't shape up, I'm going to ship out. I said, really? He said, yeah, the keys were open in the car. She was ready to start the accelerator. But you know, now she's saying I'm a much more compassionate, loving person. So I could have explained that, right? That mm. physical activity lights up the brain. Physical mm. activity has wonderful role modeling. But if I'd spent hours coaching that person, they wouldn't have got it. So mm. when they actually you know, stay in the structure, perceived locus of causality, I now know a frame on it. And you tell someone you've got to do it, and then they sort of start almost liking it. And then they suddenly go, hey, Ellen, you should be doing this. So they become the most biggest pain in the backside to me. Everyone. <laughs> we, all, <laughs> we all should be doing fitness. It's wonderful for our relationships. Now, then I have some people who are more the cognitive ones. And the risk with them is you can spend lots of time talking about models and frameworks and schema, but they don't do anything. But if you go too quickly on those people with action, I'll lose them because they want to get you know, off the dance floor. Yeah onto the balcony, give them a few structures. So I'll say, okay, we can navel gaze, pontificate, ruminate and all the other eights for a while, but then just get off your backside and do it. So mm. that was a long answer, <laughs> but it's exciting, right? We can have this meaningful, deep conversation. Absolutely. And I think, and I can't for the life of me, I'm racking my brain as you speak for the exact quote and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it, it's along the lines of, you know, motivation it's not something that we find, it's something that comes once we've started. So that idea, again, with the physical element for you, it's the doing of it. And we understand the physiology behind that as well. But I think for so many of these things, and I know I'm always advocating for my coaching clients and others that I work with, that paying attention is just a really big part of this, that you do something. Mm. If you pay attention to how you feel physically, how you feel emotionally, what's going on around you, that will embed the learning, the benefits that you're getting from it because you start to see. And simple things like, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of just walking. So this year, like many other families, we acquired a COVID dog. So take the dog for a walk. What sort of dog? We've got a Kelpie, of all things. <laughs> uh, we, we got a dog just before COVID, which was good timing because they've doubled or tripled in price. We've got a Grudel, mm. and now I go walking and can almost see people wanting to offer money. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I'm yeah. actually thinking of selling him, and then I'll just say the kids he's run away and just pocket the 10 grand. <laughs> well, yes, you're in Sydney and the oodles. It's oodles and oodles for oodles, apparently, in Sydney. So uh, a, a friend of mine said recently, oh, you've got an AFO, another uh, um, oodle. <laughs> Yeah, no, we're regional, you know, on the cusp of rural landscape here. So we've got the good Australian working dog. Beautiful dogs. Yeah, yeah. but look, back to what you're saying, it's not one size fits all. And that's what you know, we love about coaching. That's what I love about you know, conversations like this, that when you're a builder, you have 15 different hammers. You, you don't try and hit the same nail with the same hammer. There's a science in this and there's an art in this as well. But regardless of whether it's perceived locus of causality with its other models and case conceptualization and all these other words, the biggest part is just showing up and continuing to show up. So I often get asked, 
especially in media, oh, look, what is the best exercise to make you physically fit? Or if there's one thing, I got asked this recently in a forum, if there's one thing, Andrew, like I can do to increase, you know, I've read Carol Dweck's, this lady said, I've read Carol Dweck's growth mindset and I love it. What is the best thing I can do to have a growth mindset? And I said, everything. I've spoken about today. No, no, no. What, what's the one? No, no. Walk every day. You know, have love in your life. You know, nurture your brain to show up. And it's the same with fitness. What's the best way to get fit and ripped in your 40s? Get 10,000 steps every day and you know, train three or four times a week and do that time and time and time again. There's no magic panacea. Sorry, your listeners have probably now just dropped out by the thousands. <laughs> well, I hope not because I hope in all, all the listening that they've done through all of our guests and the conversations we've had that they appreciate that nothing about human behavior is straightforward, simple, and there isn't a magic bullet. I'm, I know they're smart enough to know that, but it's about giving them all of the tips and the strategies from all the different domains that we discuss on the show to be able to, I suppose, find the right thing for you, just as you say, that it is about mm. tailoring it to what you need and the better we get at understanding ourselves as individuals and what works for us, the better able we are to pick the right strategy or just to come back to a, a growth mindset, try things and work out what works and quickly work out. I think if anybody asks me, it's the best way to develop a growth mindset. It's just to fail at everything because <laughs> it's only through the failures mm. that we work out what works. So, you know, try everything that people suggest and obviously doing the things with an evidence base, I think is a pretty good place to start. So, so on that, can I ask you a question? Of course. And you can claim, oh, no, we've got a, more questions to ask you. So you can duck or, or weave from this one as <laughs> no, well. No, no, no. I'm happy to be on the receiving end. Do you ever do any coaching or any conversations where you don't do it on an evidence base, where you just do it because <sighs> it sort of comes to you, it, it, this feels right? And you have full permission to, to avoid this question. No, no, no. I'm not going to avoid it at all because you mentioned Tony Grant earlier. On and Tony was our esteemed lecturer, amazing person who ran the coaching psychology unit along with Michael Kavanagh in the early days and somebody that I know we both learnt a lot from. And I distinctly remember one of those aha moments sitting in my lectures when Tony talked about jazz coaching and the idea <laughs> that... So you just taken me back to that lecture. Yeah, like just yeah. A, yeah. The jazz coaching idea meant a lot for me and, and I think it was something that I developed over time. I think early on, like when you're learning anything, you really, you stick pretty rigidly to what you've been taught, to the models, to the evidence, to the strategies and you work your way through that. Over time, you develop this toolkit, some of which I absolutely admit, you know, a lot of it because i work from an evidence base and I like having these conversations and I read the science, et cetera, et cetera. So there's probably a toolkit of things that I'm not even aware that I'm necessarily accessing that do have an evidence base. But there's also just a bit that comes from life experience and a bit of earned wisdom perhaps and a bit of our own failing and the things that we've tried that worked and didn't work and all of that. And then we get to a point where we can, a bit like a jazz musician, just improvise based on this toolkit that we bring forth in the moment, which is what I love about the doing of coaching with a client is sometimes I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> mm. It's a very in the moment experience where you're creating a dynamic between two individuals and just uncovering what comes out very much like 
a podcast interview. You know, we could have scripted this and said, oh, I'll ask you this and then we'll talk about that and that, but we didn't. I just said, well, let's just have a conversation, see where it goes. And I think that's where the magic can arise. But we've both brought to that our training, our experience, our knowledge, our conversations we've had with clients, our other experiences as parents and, you know, speakers or whatever it might be. And I don't, you produce something in the moment. Mm. Interesting. If you look at your evolution and mine, we've come from two totally different areas and are probably now a lot, or not probably, we are now a lot more similar and aligned. I was a jazz coach and I can remember in the coaching psych when we did a similar time and it was a lot of people were doing it from a clinical background. And mm. I think a few of the clinical people struggle with people like me. And look, and I was a bit of a cowboy, too much of a cowboy. I think KPMG made me realize how cowboyish and loose I was. <laughs> you spent 15 years in sport. You don't know really you know, how off the charts you are. But it was always on feel for me. And then I found some frameworks and it was great. But sometimes I still go back to feel. So I think there's a really nice blend somewhere in between. I mm. think you can do too much on feel. No, this is what I feel on you know, I, 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 I. And then there's the jazz coaching, as Tony elegantly put it. I also used to remember him, and I still, every time I'm, I'm even writing notes and you're interviewing me, <laughs> oh, God, Tony's legacy he lives on because he used to say, if it ain't written, it ain't coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't even know why I used to use an American accent. But, <laughs> but I think it's that nice blend between jazz coaching and rigor. And sometimes you go on feel. I remember John Raymond uh, asked me to speak at the ICF Asia Pacific Conference and he wanted me to be a bit controversial because he knew my style. But in the early days, I think in coaching cycle, it was more around the coach, coachee. The coachee has all the answers and your job as a coach is to facilitate that. And I used to think that was rubbish because mm. I was working with a lot of, and this is my jazz coaching coming out, a lot of really busy men and women who didn't have time to have cups of tea and sticky bun. And if I didn't get a result in the first session, they would never come back. So don't do me this coach and coachee you know, thing and wonderful models and everything because it's not going to work if they don't come back. So I spoke about that. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. And I quoted Peterson's pipeline and just said, oh, here's how I think you can tell and still use Peterson's pipeline. And at the end, this guy asked a question. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a really good question. I said, what's your name? He said, and Peterson. I said, where are you from? He said, I wrote the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> so remember Peterson. I, I've, I have since connected with him. He's at Google. He's head of learning and development. But he said, Andrew, I thoroughly agree with you. And it was like, oh, the Thank moment God. where I thought the trap door was going to open up at the end of that session and everyone was going to boo me off stage. And Peterson, who wrote Peterson's Pipeline, actually said, I agree with you. It was, oh, yes, it was uh, made me feel a lot less nervous. But anyway, the point being, I think there's a blend between this. Mm, absolutely. And look, I expect that that's the same with everyone. You know, you mentioned it earlier and you talk in, in Match Fit as well about these performance moments and sports people who have been able to enact some of this stuff, you know, to have these, to have an awareness, to use the mindset, to perhaps all of that rest and recharge and, and all of those things that we thought didn't exist, but perhaps they did at the individual level. And they bring them because it comes through experience, through learning, through understanding themselves, through knowing what works for them in the moment. And we can sort of extrapolate that now with some scientific rigor behind it to then suggest it as an approach that others can use. And I'm, I'm sure that's the case in just about every work domain, professional domain. That's what makes it so rich, doesn't it? I had a coaching session with a client this morning who was an ex-athlete and very, very physical and amazing control over the body, but not good emotional regulation. And then he played back at the end of the session. It was our third session. And I just went, 
my work here is done. You're now starting to self-regulate. I'm like, That's a great feeling. Yeah, and, and some of the tools I used with him were a little bit left field. Yeah. There was a bit of jazz coaching going on there, Ellen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We yeah. love a bit of jazz yeah. coaching. But if I come back to the original frame on this on recharge, I think when you have that time to reflect and develop and grow and put it all together, you, you get more comfortable with your craft. Whereas I, I know in the early days I was very formulaic and part of that was because I was worried what other people would think. You know, there's a real link between that mm. and you know, being the performance guy and then you know, falling down. But just having that time to work out, well, what works for me? Yeah. yeah? So, but regardless of whoever's listening to this, whatever your career is, it's moving regularly. It's, it's sound nutrition. We could do a whole, a whole different podcast on nutrition and not just for the physical, for the, the neuroscience. Thank goodness we've got neuroscience. Yeah? But Hippocrates, two and a half thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, Alan, said a healthy body and sound nutrition is the platform for a flourishing mind. We just needed the physical activity men and women and the physiotherapists to talk to the psychologist. We needed neuroscience to get the link. Hippocrates knew it thousands of years ago. Crazy, right? But what you eat is such an important part of brain function, brain health, mood, you know, regulation. And you add recovery on top of that. Yeah, and then all the other compl- – and you're right, we could have a whole other conversation about this, but I think there's an awful lot of those other complicated things around how we feel about what we eat as well and what we think about what we eat and whether or not we're meeting all of those shoulds and, you know, that's, mm. again, a conversation for another day. Mm. And it was David. David Peterson. David Peterson, I, 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 If I had wrapped up this podcast and hadn't said it, it would have been, no, <laughs> disaster. I, I've spoken to what's in David. David Peterson. Andrew, look, there are lots and lots of things that we could keep talking about, but I'm conscious that you've got other things you need to do, and I know I've got other things that are coming up. I've got another podcast interview to record shortly, but it's been absolutely delightful to converse about everything we've conversed about and it's gone every direction as all good podcast episodes do i'm going to pop links to several of the things that you've mentioned today but most particularly to match fit which is the complete manual to get your body and brain fit for work and fit for life into the show notes for today's episode along with the link for the match fit calculator so that those people, and, and I think I believe there is a link in the book as well or a code for people to use. So if you buy the book, yeah. you then got the code so that you can access the calculator because it is that first starting point in measuring kind of where you're at and then using MatchFit as the manual for all of those things that we talked about and more in a really engaging way as well as reading more about Andrew's story itself in order to get back into peak condition, particularly perhaps if you're feeling, and so many of us are, I think at the end of 2020, launching into 2021, a little like we could do with a bit of brain and body conditioning perhaps, as well as all those psychological things, the purpose, the fun, the play, the reconnecting, the rest, the recharge, all of those really critical topics that we do tend to forget a little, particularly when we're in performance mode. So, Andrew, thank you. It's been delightful. Yeah, it's been lovely catching up. I will send to you a link and you can give everyone a download of the Recharge chapter because we've oh, spoken fabulous. about that a lot yes. and we've covered some deep and have glossed over other and we've gone off script and that was my fault. I'll send that through because the Recharge piece is really important, especially with COVID. 
because there will be a lot of meaning that comes out of this. So, you know, stress is great. If ever I hear an academic or someone say stress is terrible, I want to, no, get the trapdoor, get them off stage. Stress is awesome when you have periods to recover. We now call it stress inoculation theory, right? If you're training at the pointy end of the military, you give them stress and then time to recover, stress and time to recover. We now talk about post-traumatic growth. So, you know, post, after, traumatic, COVID, hello, growth, we will learn and develop and for a lot of people would never go back. But to do that, you actually need some time to recover and time to process it. So uh, we'll send that recharge chapter out to really help people put some of those strategies into practice. Perfect. Look, I think that's an excellent point. And, and perhaps it is the first thing as we head into a new year to think about is not all the goals I'm going to achieve in a performance, you know, impress everybody type sense or, or even my own fulfillment. It's perhaps about recharging first. Maybe that's the first thing we need to do in 2021, but we'll see. Andrew, thank you again. I'll put all the links so that people can find you. I think it is just andrewmay.com. Is that the best place to go? Yeah, andrewmay.com or at andrewmay on all the socials. Ah, of course, yes. So we'll put all the links to all of that so that everyone can find you. They can still catch you, I believe, on ABC News Breakfast as well. Yeah, we went live this week, which was lovely being back in the studio with Michael and Lisa. Oh, and, and uh, the NAB Business Fit podcast for any small business owner or anyone in business who you know, wants uh, some support around physical well-being and psychological resilience and getting back to business. We've got a podcast with a whole bunch of small business owners, leaders in business, large and small, entertainers, athletes, a whole range of subject matter experts. So lots of content there. Lots of content, absolutely, and that's what we like to be able to share. So thank you. We'll put all of that in the show notes for this episode and we'll chat again sometime soon. Finally go and do some jazz coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Go do that. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much for sharing that chat with Andrew May with me. Andrew is a delight to talk to, a very experienced performance coach, as you can no doubt tell, and I really do recommend his book, Match Fit, the complete manual to get your body and brain fit for work and fit for life. It is a really comprehensive handbook for a well-rounded approach to both physical and mental health. It's full of great strategies with lots of practical tips and it is well supported by the science. And there's a link to buy the book in the show notes for this episode, as well as that free chapter that Andrew mentioned for you to download and peruse. And don't forget that you can also go to matchfitcalculator.com to measure your match fitness for work and life and get your personalised report. It's a great starting point if you're keen to make some changes and improve your match fitness for life. You'll also find all of the links to find out more about Andrew and his work in the show notes. It's all at potential.com.au forward slash 91. That's the digits 91 because that's the episode number, a new thing we're implementing for a new year. And while we're talking about new things for 2021, there are some really exciting new things happening behind the scenes here at PPHQ. We're not quite ready to tell you about them yet. Not in full, but keep listening over our next few episodes and all will be revealed. And if you're not subscribing to the show already, hit subscribe in your podcast app so that new episodes are automatically added to your listening list and you will keep up to date with all of our upcoming episodes and guests and, of course, our behind-the-scenes news of new projects, new products, new activities here at PPHQ. 
Okay, so while we're talking about future episodes, what do we have for the next episode of the show? Well, I will be talking to Dr. Stan Steindall about compassion, a term that's used frequently, but do we know what it really means? And what forms does it take? And why has it evolved as critical to the human species? And how do we use it to make day-to-day life a little easier and a little kinder for both ourselves and others? Stan is a Brisbane-based clinical psychologist, business owner, researcher, adjunct associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland and author of The Gifts of Compassion, How to Understand and Overcome Suffering, which has been very recently published by Australian Academic Press. And here's a little of what Stan has to say. There are, in fact, three flows. We might express compassion for others, of course. But secondly, there is also the flow of self-compassion. The third one is actually the flow of receiving compassion from others. And it's very interesting because that can be the one that we forget or even feel most reluctant about. I mentioned in the book about doing some training with a lot of student nurses. As you would expect, they were very high on compassion for others, but quite low on self-compassion, but also receiving compassion from others, lower than perhaps you might even find in the general population. And, And it's important to consider because we want to try to get the three flows in balance. If we're being compassionate towards others a lot, and that's very good, but it gradually can kind of use us up when the compassion is just flowing out towards others. That's the next episode, episode 92 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm very much looking forward to bringing that conversation to you. It will drop a little later in January or maybe early February, as I say that. But until then, stay safe, go well, do whatever you can to fulfil your potential. And don't forget to let me know about your three things. 